Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Welcome everyone to Couch Time Podcast. My name is Janet Byramian and I'm joined by my co-host Susie Halajian. Hello everyone. And today we have a very special guest. Um, she's a clinician. She runs a center. She does beautiful trainings that I've attended, Suzette Bray. She's our guest today, licensed marriage and family therapist. How are you today, Suzette? Oh, I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor to have seasoned clinicians, you know, to come on our podcast to talk about their work. So we feel so privileged to have you here today. Extremely seasoned. I finally grew out my gray during the pandemic, <laughs> so I feel extremely seasoned. <laughs> Can you actually tell us a little bit more about your work, what got you into the field? And, and you're welcome to also talk about your center as well. Okay. Well, how I got into the field. I got into the field the same way most of us did, is that I needed therapy, and it was a great experience for me. And But for me personally, I fought it. I had to go back to school. I was a fashion designer first. It just kind of, I realized that in fashion design, I wasn't really going to have a career after age 30. So I had to start thinking about what I was going to do. Therapy was working out great. I went back to school and I was trying to decide whether to get my doctorate in philosophy or, or become a therapist. And I think I chose a therapist because the education was less. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I didn't know about those 3,000 hours you have to get for licensure. But I'm really happy that this is the route I went because I ended up teaching a lot and really realized academics was not for me. And what else can you do with a doctorate in philosophy except for academia? Mm. They always sneak in those 3,000 hours, don't they? They do. <laughs> they do. So, so I ended up going back to school and getting my 3,000 hours and working in public mental health and running various programs for kids being adopted out of foster care. I don't even know if this exists anymore. TBS, Therapeutic Behavioral Services. Also, a crisis team, which was doing all of the suicide and homicide assessment out of Santa Clarita Valley. So at that point, when I decided that, you know, we need to give private practice a shot. I realized that that was going to be my clientele, high-risk teenagers. Did that for years and then realized that there was this thing out there called DBT that could help me be more effective with not only my, my teenagers who were at risk, but also the adults I was working with. So I went tra got trained up in DBT, and a shout out to Patty Gieselman. She is the, the gal who drugged me into DBT world. <laughs> and, and, and so got trained up and then turned my private practice into Village Counseling and Wellness, where we have DBT programs for teens and adults and an intensive outpatient program and, and all that stuff. Amazing. It sounds like it almost naturally grew into this 
this massive center that it is today. And it, it was almost like all the right pieces. And I imagine it didn't feel like this at the time. And there was a lot of legwork in it, but that it really was like almost built up to it. I still don't think all the pieces have fallen into place yet. I I sometimes have to go back and remind myself of how far we've come, you know, my team and I, because when you're hammering away at it and just doing it bit by bit, it feels like you're getting almost nowhere. You're just getting these little milestones accomplished. Mm -hmm. But looking back, it's like, oh, it is a lot, isn't it? Like, wow. But I have a great team who helps me out every step of the way. It is absolutely not, not me alone. Absolutely. And Suzette, can you talk about, you know, your experience getting trained in DBT? And for those that don't know, DBT stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And I've looked into that training, Suzette, and it honestly intimidates me. Like I'm so marveling just the fact that you went through that whole intense process. So did it feel intimidating to you or did you feel like it was just something that really clicked for you? I, I really think that when I walked in and went to my first intensive training, I, I felt like there were just things swimming around me. It was all alphabet soup because, you know, DBT is all full of acronyms Mm -hmm. and I had no idea what was going on. And I was just holding on tightly for dear life, trying to learn it. And, and the guy who did my first intensive training is Alan Frazetti and he's amazing. And there's just something so comforting about him that he, he made it all seem okay. And, but it's a lot of stuff that you're trying to integrate. And me, because I had been a therapist for quite some time before that, I was trying to unlearn stuff that, that I was doing. There was, you know, a lot of learning more behavioral stuff that I just had not been trained with. And I, I kind of likened D- doing a DBT session to driving a race car because you're having to be on top of everything you're doing. Every move you make is intended to accomplish something or everything you don't do is attended to, uh, to accomplish something. Mm. It sounds like sessions are very active. Yes. Susa, for, we have some listeners who are still in grad school or might be, you know, just starting seeing clients and might be looking into, you know, specialties and theories. Would you give them a quick overview on, you know, your definition of, of DBT? Okay. You push the DBT button. You may not get me to shut up. Um, (laughs) The floor is yours. (laughs) Okay. So DBT is a cognitive behavioral treatment at its heart. The addition of mindfulness, what it's intended to do to be used for initially was for folks who were chronically suicidal and self-harming. Now that's still, you know, who we treat but after you know it was initially initially researched it's been expanded out so we don't just treat folks who are suicidal and self-harming which is kind of falls under the diagnosis of dbt the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder or bpd Um, We also treat folks who have treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant anxiety, bipolar disorder. It's also evidence-based for eating disorders. 
So it's, it's really a, a treatment that can be used for a lot of different stuff. And the idea is, is that you're working with folks often who have been told they want to be sick, who have been told that they're not trying hard enough. And these folks are generally emotionally sensitive in the first place. They feel things extremely strongly. And, and then when folks don't get it, there's a strong sense of invalidation. And so if you add up that emotional sensitivity plus chronic invalidation, you've got folks who are really have a hard time regulating emotions because so often people are looking at them and saying, what's wrong with you? That's a little weird, you little drama queen. Huh. And so when people don't get us, it's hard for us to regulate emotions. It's hard for us to experience our own emotions without uh, judging ourselves or giving or self-invalidating. So the whole treatment is balancing this behavior change because folks who have been chronically invalidated and don't trust their own emotions and have emotional sensitivity that leads to emotional dysregulation sometimes engage in behaviors that work super well in the short term, but not so great in the long term. For example, self-harm behaviors or suicide attempts. You know, the suicide attempt takes care of the problem you die, you're not in pain anymore. But the, but the problem is it's a long-term solution to a short-term problem. So we're balancing benevolent demanding of behavior change with mindfulness and validation and the idea that this makes sense. We understand that, that this is an incredibly painful life and we're here to help you and get it because so often people have really not understood where they're coming from. So balancing behavior change with this sense of uh, validation and understanding. And so a typical session looks very different than, than a traditional therapy session. Client walks in, they've got a diary card where they're tracking all of their behaviors. They're, we call them target behaviors, whether they engaged in them or not. Therapist reviews the diary card, set up an agenda for the session, and then doing a behavioral chain analysis of any target behaviors that happen. And behavioral chain analysis, I kind of look at is we're, we're taking the problem behavior that occurred and breaking it down into every possible link in the chain between a vulnerability or a prompting event and the outcome of that target behavior. So kind of the way I joke about it and is that it's kind of the murder wall of, of those uh, procedural crime shows, you know, where there's, they, they go through, they've got the, the string going from the photo to the, to the evidence bag, to this, to that, you know, and we're really trying to figure out what happened in that situation. And then working with the client and building a solution analysis so that they know what to do next time. They have a plan because, you know, when emotions get really big, and we end up doing things that are, you know, work in the short term, but don't work in the long term. 
generally it's because our emotion level is high, our prefrontal cortex has said, bye-bye, I don't want to be involved anymore, and we're going with this old-school primitive brain, you know, this cave person or lizard brain or whatever you want to call it, and that does not tend to make very good decisions for our long-term benefit. So we, if we have a plan, then lizard brain can follow the plan or at least get involved enough to get out of lizard brain and get prefrontal cortex back on board. So that's an individual session. Then there's a skills training class. And I like to call it a class because it's not, 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 not a process group. We're just in a class learning DBT skills, the skills of mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, interpersonal effectiveness. And so that solution analysis I talked about is taking those skills and applying them to the problematic behavior and making that plan for lizard brain and then prefrontal cortex when it gets back online to follow. Now, other than that, <laughs> there's also phone coaching. And phone coaching is when a client calls up and says, hey, the skills I know so far are not working for me. So they call the therapist and say, this is what's going on. I've got these, I've, this is brief description of the behavior or the situation that's going on. These are the skills I've used so far, help. And then the therapist gets back to the client, you know, maybe right away, maybe three, four hours later, it depends, and says, ah, I see the problem. Let's tweak this a little bit. And here's a skill that you forgot about. Okay. Go to it, go back to your life, call me back if there's a problem, or call me back to check in. And then the one last thing in DBT is consult team. And consultation team is where therapists who do DBT get together, not to talk about their cases, but to do DBT on each other. So if I were going to present a case at consultation team, I would say, okay, here's what's going on with this client. Here's my troubling reaction that I'm having a hard time with. Help me use DBT skills so I can be the most effective therapist I can be to this particular client. So that's it. Not really in a nutshell, <laughs> but as close to a nutshell as you can get it into. You know, I love that the whole plan of it itself includes a component for the therapist's growth as well. I feel like that is often overlooked within theories. You know, we talk about it when we're teaching therapists, when we're talking about therapy on how important a therapist's own growth and continued learning is. But I think it's really beautiful that DBT includes that in its own components. Another thing I really like about it is the idea in the skills training assumptions, we talk about the idea that, that you can't fail in DBT. DBT can fail you mm -hmm. because for so long, especially our main clientele folks with borderline personality disorder have been being told it's their fault that therapy isn't working. And, you know, it's really DBT says this may be the wrong treatment. The treatment may not be, be being delivered correctly. The therapists on your team may not have figured out how to effectively motivate enough, or it may not be the right time for treatment. So it's 
put, pulling those all together because I, I don't know, you know, I think most women have had the experience of going to a doctor and saying something's wrong and having a doctor say, yeah, that shouldn't be that way and kind of being dismissed. But our clients have been dismissed over and over and over and over and over. And I like the idea that we take responsibility for our failures rather than blaming them on the client. Absolutely. That's beautiful. I love, Suzette, also how you talked about this idea when you were getting trained, this idea of unlearning, you know, those previous skills. And and we actually, in fact, had a conversation about this with another clinician that in grad school, I feel like we're kind of taught, I don't, I don't know what your experience was, but maybe like archaic therapy or therapy that's not necessarily as relevant, you know, to like the current times now. And I, I just know, at least for me personally, I've had to unlearn so many things. Like I remember a supervisor in my graduate program told me that, you know, under no circumstances should we as therapists self-disclose. And perhaps self-disclosure is not appropriate in DBT, but I know in, in, in other settings, I have found it to be quite powerful with specific clients. So I'm, I'm appreciative that you say that, that sometimes we're taught certain things and in fact, it doesn't always resonate and it's important to unlearn certain things that don't fit. I, I agree. And, and self-disclosure is considered appropriate in DBT. Oh, great. People are generally allowed to ask, like, do you have a kid? Do you, are you married? And it's not considered a big deal to say, no, no kids. But people are also allowed to have their own boundaries around that. I happen to be, you can tell you kind of can't shut me up. I'm a big discloser. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the unlearning piece is really tricky. There's this great video out there of a backwards bike um, mm-hmm. where somebody had the ba- a backwards bike built where it, it didn't turn the correct way when you did the handlebars. Mm-hmm. And it's like the guy who did the video, it took him months to relearn how to ride a bicycle. And that's how I felt when I was learning DBT. I was learning to validate some things, but don't validate, you know, anything other than an emotion. Don't validate ineffective behaviors. Don't do that. Monitor your tone so that you're less warm and more warm other times. And, you know, or don't return an ineffective coaching call. So somebody called me and said, I don't want skills. I just want to let you know that I'm going to hurt myself, right? I'm not allowed to return that call in DBT. And I think in grad school, I, I think I would have been thrown out of grad school if I had ever mentioned that idea. Yeah. So for individuals who might be in those beginning stages of learning DBT, you know, I imagine someone might come across this episode and, and want to, to learn more. What would you, what piece of advice would you give to someone who is maybe finding difficulty in unlearning those previously taught ideas and examples of how to be a therapist? I think the big thing to remember is that there's room for all of us. If DBT doesn't feel right, there's a lot of other effective treatments out there. Mm -hmm. 
that's that's number one you know there's there's you know make perhaps the population doesn't feel right or or whatever but i think too is this kind of i can't remember what it's called but it's something like intentional practice a very much going in with the intent that you're going to do it the way by the book until you learn how to do it naturally and it just comes naturally now i don't necessarily think about what i'm doing anymore particularly unless it's really tricky but for a long time i had checklists taped around the office and a structure to the minute of what an ideal dbt session should look like and and actually got very angry about that and felt like like do i even want to do this but then I realized that once I was able to ingrain those things, it started feeling like me again. And a therapy session felt natural and like me, and I was in it rather than being a DBT robot. But it does take some, some real time to make that happen. And I had some long-term clients who had seen me pre-DBT, who would come back every couple of years for a tune-up or, you know, a check-in or, you know, next developmental stage session. And they'd go, you're really different now. And the interesting part is they all like it. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's nice to know that, that all this hard work has paid off, even to my non-DBT clients. They definitely feel like they're walking away with more concrete things that they can do. That's so relatable, Suzette, when you were saying, as you were training, just the fact that it just didn't feel natural at first, or you were questioning, you know, can I do this? It's so relatable that you say that. I, I had a similar experience when I was training and, and starting to implement EMDR. It's just such a different protocol to follow. And, you know, I'm thinking, same thing, thinking to myself, having these assessments, having these checklists, you know, am I following my intuition correctly? Kind of with you're using that different part of the brain. I, I feel like I have now an EMDR brain that I use with clients. So it's so relatable that you say that. I appreciate you saying that. And I think a lot of our listeners, particularly the newer clinicians, will appreciate that too. Again, coming from a very seasoned clinician. I had a lot to unlearn. Yeah. <laughs> how, how long did it take you to get an EMDR brain? You know, I think it took me over a year of just following the protocols, doing my consultations, you know, checking in to see how my clients were doing in treatment. And, and now, you know, I've been doing EMDR a little while, like three years or so. And now I can do an EMDR assessment without even having the paper in front of me. But I think at the beginning, it was just, oh my gosh, this is a very weird question that I wouldn't naturally have asked in this part of the assessment. So yeah, it took me, I think, a little over a year to kind of consistently do it and, and start feeling like it was natural again. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Do you, do you switch between EMDR and, and non-EMDR sessions? Like, do you have to decide, like, this is EMDR day and this is non-EMDR day? or? 
Well, like you, Suzette, in terms of having like a DBT button, I feel like I've drank the EMDR Kool-Aid. So (laughs) I feel like my brain will just go to like trauma processing. Like I just think that's how my mind works. Every now and then I'll get a client that's like, I absolutely don't want to do EMDR. I just want to address these issues. But even with my couples that I've worked with, like I, I'll still bring up certain things like, where do you notice this in your body? You know, we'll do some of that bilateral stimulation, you know, both in individual and couple settings. So I just feel like it's, it's kind of a part of me now. And I, I too feel like I haven't, you know, kind of gone back to where I was prior to my EMDR consultations. Yeah. It just, it just gets normal after a while to just have that, that level of enrichment, you know, like you can still do a traditional therapy session, but now you've got this whole much bigger toolkit to come from. Mm -hmm. I, I was trained back in the really olden days. I mean, 25 years ago in grad school, they, you know, I was still being trained by some of the, the marriage and family therapy folks from Palo Alto back in the beginnings of marriage and family therapy, wow. where, you know, where, you know, if you ever saw the tapes, you know, Salvador Mnuchin's putting the kid <laughs> on the chair and, and I was still being trained by the last people who had been trained by those folks. And so it was very different to how therapy looks now. Mm-hmm. And Family therapy was very much, you know, you had all these rules about not seeing the, the anybody unless the whole family was there and, and, and all of this. But that's so often, and so many of us who are MFTs, you know, do we really do old school family therapy anymore? It's just not, not really. Yeah, it happen. really does feel like in, yeah, it feels like in today's, you know, therapy world and climate, it's kind of fallen through the cracks. And there's so much focus on individual therapy and of course, couples therapy as well. But you're both right. You know, there aren't these concrete examples of what family therapy is anymore. And I think, I don't remember if I read an article or I was having a conversation with friends about this a while ago, but besides those foundational therapy theories, it doesn't feel like there has been much change or much focus from therapists t- today for family therapy. No, I couldn't. I, it's so hard to find people who are even doing it, even though it's so needed. Right. Yeah. yeah it's so needed. And, and just to kind of bring this up to Suzette, since I, you know, it's related to DBT and your work is I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're in May and May is borderline personality disorder awareness month, you know, and one of the things that at least I found in our community as clinicians, and, and I'm glad that this has changed. I don't think this is this way fully anymore, but you know, there's, there's a stigma with this disorder. There's a stigma with you know, this diagnosis, or I've even, not now, luckily, but previously in my career, just hearing how clinicians just did not want anything to do to working with borderline clients. And I just wonder, you know, what is your thought about that? And and how do you, you know, I guess as a clinician deal with that because you run a DBT center and in a sense, you know, you advocate for this population that you work with. 
you just pulled out my soapbox and asked me to climb up upon it. It's something I'm really passionate about. Yeah. I remember back in grad school where they would lean, the, the instructors would lean kind of in a conspiratorial way, lean forward and say, here's how you make sure you don't get any borderlines. You know, it's like, wait, wow. they're a person with borderline personality disorder, a person who's been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It drives me nuts, but I can understand how when you're continually faced as a clinician with folks that you don't know what to do with, right. that you, that, you know, it's human nature to decide that it's their problem, you know, that they're awful rather than, wait, I don't have the training to work with folks who struggle with this. And, you know, until Marsha Linehan started looking at DBT, because, you know, you know, Marsha has mm -hmm. a gnarly case of BPD herself. She came out in her mm -hmm. memoir and, and spoke about it. But until she started creating this treatment, there just weren't very many ways where therapists could feel successful and where we could provide adequate treatment. But now, with DBT in the randomized controlled trials, 75% of folks with a disorder that's considered lifelong and unchanging didn't meet criteria for BPD at the end of their treatment. And that's better than depression yeah. and anxiety. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so once you've got the tools and you know what to do, they're not scary folks anymore. And, and I also think that there's, there's a couple of different forms of BPD. There's, there's the, the classic, you know, when we sat down in grad school and they showed us fatal attraction and Glenn Close was boiling bunnies and saying, I will not be ignored. You know, that's, that's most of our folks aren't struggling to that extent. They, you know, they're not, these aren't demon people. I've, I've been, I, I have a lovely client. I just, I adore this person. And she came in to start seeing me when she was quite young. I mean, like, like preteen with symptoms of borderline personality disorder. Recently, we've been working together on some stuff around a, a, a kind of emotionally abusive friendship that was, she was involved with. And she's reading a lot about emotionally abusive relationships, toxic relationships, things like that. And she keeps coming in and saying, they're blaming BPD again. They're blaming BPD again. That where they're, where they're saying that, oh, these are the kind of folks who are, who are prone to be the other half in a toxic relationship. And it breaks my heart because it's still stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. the disorder. And I could line up 30 people with BPD and 28 of them, you would meet at a party and you'd say, what an awesome human being. And five of them would end up being your friends, mm -hmm. all because BPD doesn't look the way people think BPD generally looks. Very, it's a very painful disorder, but it's not a, for the most part, a a scary, horrible, vindictive, awful disorder. And it seems like the understanding of it from, you know, years past of, of school and, and just general public has, has come some way, but I'm hearing that there's definitely still a little bit to go in, in almost like rehumanizing 
the disorder to the general public, right? There is, like you said, there is still a little bit of that concern and that fear and those misconceptions. I'm getting kind of concerned because I really thought we'd come a long way. But with all this focus lately on narcissistic abuse and things like that, I, I'm hearing BPD tied to that a lot. And I'm, I'm getting scared that we're going through another round of, of demonizing folks with personality disorders. So I'm curious with that, Suzette, I mean, what do you feel like, not just as clinicians, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human, what can we do to support and, and I guess, destigmatize these misconceptions about personality disorders? I think that, you know, the in DBT, our basis of borderline personality disorder is the idea of emotional sensitivity that you know, you're emotionally sensitive. We, our theory is that about 15% of the population has this emotional sensitivity. Then you have high reactivity, slow return to baseline. People invalidate you, tell you your emotions are wrong, you know, whatever. And then you have trouble regulating your emotions because you don't trust your own emotional experience. But let's look at the very basis of that emotional sensitivity. Don't we all therapists have that? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> if yep. we didn't, wouldn't that be kind of a weird job to have? You know, people come into your office, they they start relating their story, and it's like, well, yeah, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You know, mm-hmm. get get over it, get past it, move on. I think one day we're going to realize that borderline personality disorder, whatever it ends up getting named in the future, that you can have a touch of it and that it's on a continuum. And there are different styles and ways in which it comes out. And I think that a lot of people aren't diagnosed with it because of the stigma, not because of the disorder itself. I mean, I'd like to see a day where It's not called borderline personality disorder anymore, but you can have a touch of the BPD. Oh yeah, I've got, I trend towards BPD when I'm, when I'm struggling, you know, Mm -hmm. and then because so many of us do, we're emotional and we have, and we react and we have to use skills to get through our day-to-day lives. I'm me included. And it just, the fact that with my clients, you were talking about self-disclosure earlier, that I'm really open with the idea that I'm emotionally sensitive and that skills, DBT skills make a huge difference in my life and that I need them to be an effective human being. That if we could just get to that point, if we could get to the point where DBT skills and other other skills are being taught in schools, because most of us need them. You know, that would be such a nice and positive shift for, you know, many current disorders, I think, because there is still, I think there's such a heavy stigma attached to the names and the way that disorders have been defined and described for years. So to be able to to shift to something like that, where it does feel a little bit more like descriptive even, would be a really beautiful shift in the mental health field. So Suzette, I think that's an amazing recommendation and, and vision for how it could progress. I wish it were called emotional dysregulation disorder. And then folks could own it. And Mm. it could be like, you know, 
who doesn't say, oh yeah, my anxiety's kicking in, you know? Right. So we could say, oh yeah, my emotional dysregulation's kicking in. Yep. And it would just be considered part of the human experience rather than this thing those people have. Right. I, I hope we get to that point. Maybe we need to have a meeting with the DSM committee or something. <laughs> are we even getting a new I, I one? Think a lo- I think a lot of people are trying to make that happen. Um, I hope but, we get to see it in our, in our clinical lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. Although trying to learn a new DSM is always hard. <laughs> right. I hear that you. That too. Suzette, one, one more quick thing for, for individuals who might be in school or might be new clinicians again, what would be your piece of advice for those who might be interested in learning or getting VT? Do you have an, any help on, you know, where to direct them and, and what they need to look out for? Oh, that's a great question. There's Linehan-based DBT, Marsha Linehan, the creator of DBT. And to really do that form of treatment, you want to look at the idea of either going to work at a place where they do full bore DBT. And, you know, if, if folks are saying that they, that they use Linehan, they're usually in the know. And or getting intensively trained. Mm-hmm. And that's a process that is usually about 10 days of training spread out over a year. It ends in a certification that I haven't gotten yet. I'm going to get it one day. It's very involved, very detailed, but you know the time is going to pass anyway. Mm-hmm. So a year is going to pass anyway. Why not get trained you know, in mm-hmm. something over a year? Um, there are folks out there who are certifying folks in DBT after weekend-long trainings or you know, three-day trainings, and, and that's very different than standard, comprehensive, Linehan-based DBT. I'm not going to say that's not useful. There's, you know, like I'm very all about learning whatever you can, whenever you can. And a little bit of DBT for folks who don't have borderline personality disorder or emotional dysregulation can be very helpful. But for the real treatment, the one that's been researched, it's intensive training Mm -hmm. or going to work with folks who are doing the real thing. Yeah, thank you for that roadmap. We'll be sure to to include it in our show notes for those who will, I'm sure, you know, be interested in in finding out more. And Suzette, so to to kind of wrap up, we do like to ask this question to every clinician that comes on our podcast. How do you feel like you keep it real as a modern therapist in our ever changing times as clinicians? I really like the phrase, I don't know. I'll go check that out. <laughs> um, I love that. I, I really, you know, the, the, the getting older really is wonderful because you do realize how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it stops being scary to say, I don't know. And the fact that, that I can say, I don't know, go do a little research makes me feel like like I'm more real, like I'm not having to pretend to be an expert. And that helps me feel more more authentic. I'm I I really feel like if we're not being human, then what's the point? 
Thank you. Thank you for, again, for your authenticity with that. Again, so relatable to everyone in every stage of the field and every stage of their career. Absolutely. For me too, actually talking about that and talking about unlearning, when I went from the agency that I was working at to, you know, working under my supervisor in private practice, that was the first and I think hardest lesson that she ever taught me. And it's that you can spend decades learning something and you will never be the expert at it. You will never be the expert in your client's life. So being able to be humble and say, you know, I'm not sure on that. I'm going to need some time to, to look into it and to, to be able to say that is, is a wonderful, wonderful way to hold yourself as a therapist. So thank you for that, Suzette. Really resonated. So Suzette, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work? They want to learn more about your center. They can find us on the internet, villagecounselingandwellness.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again, Suzette, for joining us. Again, we feel so privileged that you imparted your wisdom about DBT today and about training and about the field of mental health. We thank everyone for listening today and feel free to message myself or Susie on our Instagram pages. I'm at therapy with Janet B and Susie, you're at sessions with Susie on Instagram. If there are additional topics that you want to listen to, please let us know and we will absolutely oblige. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye.